Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing All rounds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that has done it quite a few times, you know, and successfully so. Uh, and uh, he is from Startup Nation, originally from Israel. We're going to be talking about, you know, building, scaling, financing, integrating, you know, the company once it's acquired by a large player, they sold the last company to McDonald's. Uh, and then also... Uh, challenges, you know, as well with a big company versus a small company, going through rounds of financings, all of those good insights that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Itamar RL. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So originally born and raised in Israel. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Yeah, no, I, I uh, born and raised in Israel. I was kind of a computer nerd from uh, as, as far as I can remember. So naturally, you know, coded very early at a Commodore 64 and a Commodore Amiga, if anybody remembers those machines. Um, and then eventually ended up uh, naturally gravitating to studying computer engineering in, um, in college and then grad school and, and so on and so on. So that's, uh, it was great. It was a great time to, to be a computer nerd. So what about coming to the U.S.? How did that thing happen? How do you land here? Yeah, so following my PhD, which I also did in Israel, I uh, sort of wanted to pursue an academic career and so start a postdoc at Stanford. Um, this is this is pre the 2012 AI machine learning revolution, so a much smaller community, uh, did early work in reinforcement learning, and then um, sort of in what was kind of life takes you in all sorts of weird directions, ended up taking a faculty position at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, um, also in a computer engineering program. And therefore, you know, about 10 years did work in reinforcement learning, some robotics even, and what later became the field of deep learning. It was, a, it was an exciting, like I said, much smaller community, but very exciting time to, to do that kind of work. So tell us about also going to startup land, you know, which is uh, really being in Stanford and seeing all the innovation around you too, and, and, and all, the, all the different startups that are flourishing. You know, how was that moment as well for you to venture into the startup world because you did that at the same time in which you were exploring academia. Right. I, I think in retrospect, I was always intrigued by taking sort of the latest and greatest ideas in machine learning, of course, and trying to even push them further and see what kind of products and services they can they can deliver in the real world, you know, the impact. That's not to say that academic work or scholarly work uh, in publishing papers is, is less exciting. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think I've always been kind of uh, passionate about uh, what could be built with these technologies. And you're right, Stanford is one of those places where almost every faculty member, uh, just being in the epicenter of Silicon Valley, every faculty member is is uh, is involved in some kind of entrepreneurial activity. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, so during my academic career, I was involved in several companies that made use of machine learning in one domain or another. Uh, so I split my time of academia and, and, and that kind of entrepreneurial activity. One of those companies uh, was an early uh, company called Binatics. Was a early company that uh, made use of machine learning in financial uh, analytics, uh, signals for financial trading and things of that nature. Uh, it was very interesting to think about that, you know, that time, again, which wasn't that long ago versus now, the tools that, that were um, made available were much more limited. You need to, you, we needed to code our own CUDA code and, and develop algorithms uh, almost from scratch. Um, so 
that I think was one of those experiences that got me excited about what could be done with machine learning um, in, in, in the real world. And then um, after 10 years in, in, in academia, I decided to take two years of sabbatical and had, I uh, was fortunate to have a, a, a courtesy appointment, a visiting professorship at the Stanford AI lab. I uh, worked with uh, Silvio Savarese on a fairly large DARPA project we had. Uh, Silvio, of course, at the time was a, was a professor and since took the role of uh, chief scientist at Salesforce. Um, and, and after a couple of years there, I uh, decided uh, to uh, leave academia, leave tenure, which is an un uncommon move and um, or give up tenure and and turn to to the dark side or the light side and uh, been uh, been in several companies since so at what point did you realize that uh, maybe academia is not the path for you to follow I think I felt at some point, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, that a lot of the, this is p mostly post-2012, the sense was that a lot of the exciting work, certainly more on the applied research side of things in the, in the field of machine learning and AI, was, was somewhat shifting outside of academia, either to large corporations like Google and Facebook that have very prominent sort of research and applied research teams, or, or startups, small companies that want to do something unique in, in some niche. Um, and, and, and I, I think at that point you sort of have to make a decision. Do you stay in academia or do you try to, uh, to maybe, uh, switch to, to one of those settings? And at some point it became clear to me that, that that's what I wanted to do. It's interesting as an academic, uh, particularly on the research side, part of your job is to, to have graduate students and train them, essentially train the next generation of, of researchers, particularly PhD students. And, and there's a lot of satisfaction and fun in that. It, you know, the first two, three years, you, you sort of, um, you teach someone how to become a researcher, how to approach a research problem. And then they hopefully at some point take off and, and find their own topic and write a dissertation about it and so forth. Yeah, you know, I found in industry, it's um, it's different in, in, our, in our field, particularly in deep tech, AI, again, either startups or large organizations, um, you, you sort of have the, the output of that. You, you typically have a group that has a uh, numerous number of PhD uh, folks with PhDs that have the experience of, you know, they're already trained to be good, hopefully applied researchers and, and you can run fast and you could do the kind of things that, that are just difficult to do in academia. The academic life just naturally um, has a different cost function, if you will. So yeah, there's not good or bad. It's of course a very personal decision. I just, I was just very excited about the latter and what could be built with a strong team of very motivated and, and smart people. So then, so then for you, you ended up uh, going at it, and uh, ultimately the company that you ended up uh, going at it with was uh, called Apprente, uh, which ended up being a pretty interesting, um, you know, outcome too. But walk through, uh, walk us through, you know, what were the sequences of events that needed to happen for you to bring Apprente to life? Sure, absolutely. So after making the decision to leave academia, I actually was fortunate to join a fund as an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. This was at the Ame Cloud Ventures, which is the fund started by uh, Jerry Yang, of course, started Yahoo. Uh, I'd, I'd known folks from that fund and, and it was just, uh, they, they offered this opportunity and, you know, being an EIR is a great time to uh, figure out what you want to do when you grow up. Like, you know, take some time and look at, maybe interesting problems out there and 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 and, uh, and if you are if you do have the entrepreneurial bug then it's a great time to prepare for that and then launch a company and that was that was actually what what happened i was there for about a year and then started apprente as you mentioned in very very early well kind of late 2016 early 2017 um and of course i were one of the investors that's also 
a common sort of trajectory, right? If, if a fund hosts you and you do end up launching your, your startup, then it's not uncommon for that fund to, to have the opportunity to invest. Um, so, yeah, so basically the, the, the interesting story there is that at Apprenti, very early, we had the vision of building voice AI agents that automate the order-taking process at drive-thrus. So think Starbucks, McDonald's, Yum! Brands, you know, Burger King, and so forth, all these chains that we know and love. Uh, that general space is called the quick service restaurant space. Uh, of course, McDonald's is the, uh, the, the, the industry leader, I think roughly about 11% of the market. But what's interesting is there's a long tails over 50, five zero uh, chains in the U.S. Um, that have over a billion dollars in revenue. So it's a, so it's a very fragmented, very rich uh, space. And what's, what's even more interesting or what we found was interesting, over 70% of the revenue across that whole space comes from the drive-thru, which is a little mind-blowing. You think it's the delivery and the sit-down restaurants, but... No, nope. apparently um, most people in the U.S. don't want to leave, leave their truck as they <laughs> as they get their food, and it's uh, it's natural. It's sort of the, it's inherent to that business model. Um, and when we learned that you know, the bulk of the revenue did come from the drive-through, um, it made perfect sense to say, well, could, could we automate that order taking process? If you've ever looked at staff at these restaurants, they you know they multitask like crazy. I, I have huge appreciation for what they do they, they take orders and they make food and they make drinks and they do so many things in parallel that's kind of uh, it's amazing and so our thesis was all right well, well let's see if there's interest in in kind of automating that piece the order taking piece um you know not necessarily as a direct like cost reduction job killing thing but maybe as a way of again offloading that load from the staff so they can make more food and maybe even grow the, the pie the revenue and and so we started with that thesis, we, we built our product. Um, as I mentioned, we did work with, with many of these chains that I mentioned. And uh, McDonald's in particular, we were introduced to them through Greylock, who were one of our investors at the time. And it's one of those things, just timing is, is everything in this space. You know, they, they were independently sort of looking out for the, the innovation team was looking to see whether this is science fiction or not, whether the technology is mature enough to have such a solution sort of automate the vast majority of the orders at the drive-thru. Um, and, and so we ended up working with them and um, and then piloting it at, at stores and so forth. And, 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 and before before that, how, how were you guys making money? What was the business model of uh, Apprenti for the people listening to get it? Yeah, so it, it was inherently sort of a, a SaaS model. Uh, what was interesting is, and it's true for, for any enterprise use case, there, there is, of course, a cost reduction, sort of cost reduction value proposition, uh, but there's also a huge customer improvement, customer experience improvement component to it. Uh, with McDonald's, it was literally to try and quantify both the cost, the, the potential cost reduction and the the potential revenue ad. Like I said, if you if you free up staff at the at the restaurant, they can make more food. They can they can do other things that they multitask like crazy around, um, and 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 generally even just improve the customer experience by not having, for example, customer wait too long. Right? If the if the average order time gets shorter because again the staff is freed up to do other things, that results in in more volume and, and just overall better customer experience. So with them, if the calculus was McDonald's has fourteen plus. A thousand stores in the U.S. and about forty thousand uh, stores globally, and so you do the numbers. Any significant uh, cost reduction there translates to to a meaningful number. Um, yeah, it's it was it was quite quite an adventure. And um, because prior to the transaction actually happen, um, you were talking about Greylock. I mean, incredible VC. How much capital did you guys raise uh, right before the transaction? 
Yeah, so we raised uh, about $5 million as a seed round. Um, and then, at, this is an interesting uh, story there, as we were preparing to do our sort of Series A, our conventional priced round Series A, uh, at that point, we were already um, fairly far along engaged with McDonald's to the point where we had a POC that was a paid POC, um, and we were paid, paid well, certainly in, in, uh, in startup terms, to the point where it just made sense to maybe do another seed, which is essentially what we did, to bridge um, the process, not necessarily from, from the perspective of running out of runway or money, but just uh, to sort of see where that relationship with uh, McDonald's matures into and, it, and and then sort of be able to better price a Series A. Um, that, we, we did raise that second round. So all in all, raise about $10 million um, for Prente. But of course, Series A never happened because uh, at some point we were approached with the idea of folding into McDonald's. So, so you were you were talking about this earlier. Greylock was the one that initially made the connection to McDonald's. So, how did the you know how did that the, the situation or the sequence of events you know unfolded towards the acquisition? What happened you know after that connection happened, and then how did that journey translate all the way into you inking a deal to have the company acquired for 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 over nine figures? I think it was reported. Yeah. So. The introduction was so all, the the big funds do this, and I think it's part of the true value add that they offer. Uh, they have relationships with chief uh, technology officers and chief innovation officers across many large organizations, and periodically they invite these folks to um, share with them uh, portfolio companies that they think might be interested in in you know what they're building might be relevant to those big uh, enterprise uh, customers, and that's exactly sort of the setting uh, through which we were introduced to the McDonald's folks. Uh, Greylock hosted this this event where I think it was six or seven companies. Not sure whether any of the others ended up kind of uh, pursuing that relationship. But for for us, like I said, this was something that was vaguely on the roadmap. They were independently looking at, at this. I guess they were feeling like, uh, you know, maybe with, with that, even at the time this was posted, the 2012 deep learning, uh, deep learning was already a thing and AI was picking up. And so I think they had the sense of, you know, maybe maybe it's not science fiction anymore. And so we uh, we were introduced to that event followed up with some meetings we had an early demo of what we were building and um you know i have a huge respect for, for for mcdonald's as a company because one of the things they said okay let's 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 make a bet here let's invest some time develop this poc into something that's pilotable and then go into a pilot in real stores and really test this thesis um mcdonald's at the time had a um, an innovation team under the global technology uh, organization whose job was primarily to do exactly that. Figure, find, find startups or other companies that have unique technologies that might be impactful for their business. And so again, it was one of those kind of perfect, everything, you know, timing aligns and, and uh, incentives align and, and we ended up working with them. Um, you know, it's interesting because we were we were about a year into the to the engagement and already, as I mentioned, piloting our solution in stores. When I got called in, I met um, this is the second time I think I met the CEO, and and he said two interesting things. He said, you know, McDonald's views itself as an industry leader, of course it is, and he felt like uh, they should be paving the way to solutions like this. It, 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 we we had convinced them, I guess, at that point that it's no longer science fiction; this can actually be done, and so definitely. What, part of the reason for proposing the acquisition was to because they wanted the team and the tech and believed in what we were doing. The other part was that 
you know, McDonald's felt at that point, or at least that was our impression, that they were behind in establishing kind of a Silicon Valley center of excellence around intelligent automation, AI, much like Walmart did Walmart Labs. And at the time, you know, Uber had a reputable machine learning uh, group. And, and so part of the pitch to us was, how do you feel about being the founding team around which we'll build the center that will initially focus on this voice solution, but maybe beyond that grow to computer vision, robotics, and one can imagine what the, the McDonald's of the future, store of the future would look like. And, and that, was, that, was, that was, you know, I took that back to the team and, and that, that got us excited to sort of pursue, continue that conversation. And from there on, it's, um, it was more, we wanted to know more about that. Like, how did they, are we just going to be, you know, what kind of satellite organization will we be and what would the reporting look like and the budget because i i think again what what's always the case in these kind of acquisitions is that you know for us this was an opportunity to uh to to do the the kind of things we wanted to do the, the sort of budget that no startup can do right and we grew to from about 20 at the acquisition to almost 100 about a third phds you can imagine i think a budget was around 40 million dollars a year so something of that order um, and again, it was exciting because startups would like to do all that, but they typically just they just can't, right? So, um, yeah, so a bunch of conversations down the road, we, we ended up folding in. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Really amazing, you know, uh, outcome, you know, to such a big company, you know, like that. And, and and obviously, you know, like for you guys, you did the integration, you know, you did the best thing for about two years or so. And then, you know, eventually, like everything, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And then the idea of your latest baby comes knocking, which is 10x. So at what point does 10x come knocking and why did you think it was meaningful enough for you to take action? Yeah. So as you mentioned, we were there for, I guess, two and a half years and then new leadership came on board. And while there was still and still are very bullish about the solution, I think there was a feeling that, um, you know, maybe it isn't necessarily the role of McDonald's to, to develop cutting edge AI. 
And as a product of that, we ended up being reacquired, if you will, by IBM. So the entire, at that time, almost 100 people uh, um, organization shifted, became part of IBM Watson. And um, basically, uh, you know, I saw through that transition and so forth. But to your point, when, when you're hit with the, with the startup bug at some point, particularly after three years in corporate setting, when there's a lot to learn and how big organizations manage these large projects and so forth. I, I missed uh, being in a small team that, that wants to do something kind of novel and change the world in some particular way. And so shortly after the transition to IBM, when everything was stable and running, um, we started 10X, which was about two years ago. So then tell us about 10X. You know, what are you guys doing at 10X? So many ways, it's a continuation of the philosophy. I've always been a big believer that voice is the most natural way to communicate. If you can only build machines that understand us robustly with the million different ways we have of asking for things or conveying information. And, you know, when we speak, we, we speak very different than we text. We use poor grammar and broken English and so forth. And traditionally, that's been challenging to build with machines, right? But the, the sense was, particularly around that time, I guess, 2020, 2021, um, some of us knew about uh, GPT or large language models coming out and so forth, it, it, the sense was that the, finally the pieces of the puzzle were there on the technology side to build solutions, particularly uh, on the enterprise side, that fully automate uh, customer service functions. So if you, um, in the U.S., uh, there's over, over $100 billion a year that's being spent on voiced uh, customer service, which is, which is mind-blowing. And I, traditionally, it's just, again, been challenging to, to build anything that, that even approximates human level uh, conversation. And and by the time we started 10X, the, the strong sense was, all right, now finally uh, it's ready. So we are building, again, these human-like, robust voice AI agents to automate customer service functions for the enterprise, uh, particularly the call centers. And even more specifically, started with um, travel and hospitality, so hotel reservations, car rentals, things of that nature, and then kind of expanded to real estate and, and some other verticals. There's, there's There are there's really a lot of opportunity if you've called any of your favorite airlines recently or shipping companies and so forth. It's You're usually greeted by this this IVR, kind of outdated IVR system. It's very brittle. It doesn't really get numbers well. It certainly doesn't get anything if it's not very accurately uh, conveyed. And again, the sense is in 2024, we should be we should be able to do a lot better. And so we're kind of on the mission to, to introduce almost human-like, very robust solutions that I don't know about you or most of the listeners. In, in my case, 90% of the time early on in the conversation, I press 000 and just ask for a representative. And I I do believe in the next two, three years, there'll be a transition where it's going to maybe flip. Like 80, 90% of the calls will be automated by very intelligent and robust uh, voice AI. And maybe 15, 20% will be escalated to sort of the long tail of, of questions in cases that get escalated to people. And so, um, yeah, so part of it is, the introduction of large language models. Other parts have to do with uh, with some IP, some technology pieces. We felt we can we can work on and introduce some novelty to come up with a solution that that can really um, automate again customer service function across many verticals on the enterprise side. So for this company, you raised a you you guys have raised about fifteen million dollars. So I guess the question that comes to mind here is. How did you guys go about raising money differently this time around since you had the experience with Alasco? So luckily, we had very supportive investors last time around and some I've known from even before. And frankly, when when, when when you're successful once or twice and those investors tend to believe 
you know, they should bet on you again, whether that's always true or not, you know, that who knows, but, uh, yeah, it's certainly, I mean, I would admit it, it is easier to raise money, um, with, with some success in your track record. So, you know, we approached most of the investors we had before and we said, look, this, this is an exciting, very large, I know every startup says we have a multi-billion dollar opportunity, but here really in this voice AI customer service space, there is a huge opportunity. And um, like I said, at the time, it was clear that large language models are going to be transformative and really kind of enable solutions that finally, finally create the right customer experience. And um, yeah, and, and we, we knew we needed the runway um, to, to build the team, build the tech and engage with the first customers. You know, good investors primarily want to know what you need the money for, not in terms of time or people, but like what are the business milestones or other milestones that you want to achieve with that money? And if they're convinced that a certain amount X is needed for you to hit those milestones. And that would put the company in, the, in, the, in a good position to grow and, and, and raise, justify higher value, significantly higher valuation beyond that, then, then they tend to, uh, to get on board. And, and that was kind of the case. We said we needed a, a, a long enough, this is an ambitious endeavor um, and, and we need the runway and, and we want to, want to, you know, go after something big. And we're fortunate to, to, as you said, raise $15 million as, as a seed round essentially. Well, let's go and talk on the double click on that on 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 what the future is going to be here on that next thing, big thing, no? That you were uh, sharing with investors. So, when it comes to vision, you know, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of 10x is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think all of us evolutionary are, are, are used to speech. Again, speech is just the most natural way to communicate. So we would love to pick up the phone, dial a number if we need some service, some question, and, and immediately be greeted by someone or something that understands us and, and gets the service through. That doesn't exist today. Uh, very recently, I traveled with one of the airlines that I travel here out of San Francisco. And, um, you know, it happened to be there's some weather and storms. And so if you've ever called during that time, it's not uncommon to wait like 45 minutes until you actually get a person on the line, right? And then when I did get the person, this, this lady was very kind and within 30 seconds, 45 seconds, you, you needed to move flights or something of that nature. And I, I remember leaving feeling, wow, yeah, this can A, fully be automated now. I'm definitely convinced the technology is there. And, you know, setting aside the cost reduction aspect, just customer experience. I mean, nobody likes to listen to soothing music for 45 minutes, right? The, and, and, and it's in, in some domains, particularly government, when they're super understaffed, if you have family members, older members that try to call Social Security or Medicare, I mean, it's, it's, it's notorious for like three hours on the line until you get a representative and it's not their fault they're just again understaffed a lot of so we think that uh, the, again the vast majority of those calls can be serviced without waiting time you call and you talk to a machine and you ask about this and when does this expire and can i get a copy of that and it fully handles that and so um the other thing from our client's perspective doing things like a b testing like trying a different narrative different response to a question tomorrow that might be more informative or somehow somehow better um, valuable from the business perspective doing those kind of things with people is just challenging you have to convince 5000 people somewhere either in the US or the Philippines or wherever they happen to be to say something different tomorrow that's again with machines super easy with people it's it's challenging right um so yeah ab testing analytics all these things that go beyond just the potential cost reduction value proposition seem to be a very compelling overarching kind of business story for for almost every enterprise so any 
mid-sized to large organization either manage their own call center or outsource it to, uh, through something called BPOs. These companies that, that outsource, that manage call centers for, for other companies. And um, like I said, it's a hundred billion plus year industry today and with, with varying degrees of, of, uh, of customer experience. And we think over the next two, three years, that's going to be just totally revolutionized. So then uh, here we're talking about the future. I want to talk about the past with the lens of reflection. If let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to, you know, to that moment where you were still in academia, you know, figuring things out on the venture side, maybe, you know, even right before Binatics. Uh, and let's say you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and uh, being able to tell that younger Itamar one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the biggest thing I've learned since over the years is that you sh you can't be too often or too frequent or too engaged with, with talking to customers. But one of the mistakes everybody makes, I made the same mistake first time around, is just being drinking your own Kool-Aid, being just in love with your idea and, and being convinced that the market, you know what the market wants and there's no reason to interact with it because once you're out with that solution everybody will think it's the greatest thing since last bread right and you learn that that's that's very very rarely the case and what you need to do is just very, very early even before raising money to the extent you can reach out to potential customers to think to, to people who might be uh tangentially uh interested in this and, and and validate your thesis and and refine and refine and refine because when you do go to raise money the more educated the more informed from the market you are uh the more respect you'll gain from from investors because they'll feel like you, you you've done the right due diligence you've done the homework um and and you, you're not just a guy with a dream which there's you have to be a guy with a dream but a guy with a dream that actually validated the thesis so i think that's that's the big thing that we've learned or i've learned through that experience the other thing is as a ceo particularly as a founder always you're a storyteller you you, you sell your vision to your point, you sell your ideas. It's either to investors or potential hires or customers. Um, and so refining your storytelling, I guess, uh, skills and, and really polishing what it is that you want to convey as a vision. I think that's, that's critical. Amazing. So Itamar, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, to reach out to, to me. That's right. Yeah, well, it's um, my first name, Itamar at 10x.com. Happy to, to help anyone. Happy, you know, certainly if you're an entrepreneur and you'd like advice to the extent that I can offer something valuable, happy to do so. Amazing. Well, hey, easy enough. Well, hey, Itamar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.